Well, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This text, uh, our text this evening, comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to verse 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this great text where we find grace that is given to those who are unworthy. We thank you for the grace that is found in our worthy Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look to him through your word and by your spirit, may we be conformed into his likeness. May we too, Lord, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a joy to be with you tonight. Uh, didn't expect to be with you tonight, but I'm so happy that I am. Uh, my family and I have just loved this church and have been coming here for only a short while, but we look forward to getting to know you all a bit better. But it's nice to come under the word with you tonight. Uh, I love this line that really catches my attention every time I hear this song played. It's from a a well-known Christian song, and it says this, two wonders that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. This line essentially captures the main tenor of our passage this evening. The world, the flesh, and the devil try very hard to convince us that our worth lies in what we do. Our value rests in what we Uh, do or what we say or what our status is, what jobs we have, how good we are on the field, at the workplace. Uh, It is a temptation for all of us, and the world, the flesh, and the devil knows it. But this text helps us to see that our worth truly lies in our worthy Savior, and yet our worthy Savior calls us to live worthy lives, especially in a very hostile society. And so this raises the question, how should we understand our worth and our unworthiness, especially as we enter a new year within, within an increasingly hostile society? And I think the answer comes from considering three points this afternoon. The three points are these, a worthy life, a worthy savior, and a life worth living in a hostile society. So let's consider a worthy life. 
Look at verse 27. The only thing the imprisoned apostle desires is that believers live worthy of the gospel. You look down at that first word in verse 27. It's right at the beginning, only. It's right at the front of the sentence as it is in the original to grab your attention. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm going to do something that's so stereotypical of a professor, and I apologize ahead of time, but the ESV, if you're reading it, under-translates one very important Greek verb that is translated with six English words. There's one verb behind let your manner of life be. And that single verb behind that phrase is better translated with three words. Live as citizens. That captures, I think, the intended meaning of this passage because that word's related to the Greek word polis. And you don't have to know Greek, but you, you know these words. Politics. Politicians. Those words, right, besides possibly being triggers of trauma for you, relate to civic life or to our conduct as citizens. And that's why verse 27 should be better translated, only live worthily as citizens. Now, that would have struck a chord with the Philippians. You see, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. And Romans, well, they loved the fact that they were Romans. They were proud of being Romans. And they looked down on everyone else who was not a Roman citizen. And anyone who was not a Roman citizen wanted to be a Roman citizen. Why? Because Romans had status that granted them special rights and privileges that others did not possess. And yet, with that status came civic duties and responsibilities. They must act as honorable Romans. They must live worthily as citizens. But who determines what that worthy conduct looks like in Rome? Caesar does, of course. The Roman emperor issued decrees, and we could say constructed a constitution that citizens must live by in the city of man. But Paul makes sure that the Philippians recognize that although they are in the city of man, they primarily belong to the city of God. They have a dual citizenship. They are citizens of the city of God. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And although this heavenly citizenship is far greater and more important than our earthly status, we still have an earthly citizenship. They were still citizens of Roman Philippi, the city of man. We see that even in the introduction to Philippians. He says to the saints in Christ Jesus, heavenly citizenship, who are in Philippi, earthly citizenship. We have dual status. But notice that in Christ takes precedence over in Philippi. The heavenly comes before the earthly. Just as Romans are proud of being Roman, Americans can be proud of being American. Now, there's nothing wrong with being proud of or thankful for our American citizenship. I think that we can be and should be 
especially since we enjoy all the rights and privileges that this country affords. I'm pretty sure that Paul was thankful to be a Roman citizen in Acts 22 when it allowed him to avoid getting flogged. But even so, our patriotism or love of country can be taken to an extreme, and we need to be careful. Being American doesn't mean that you're a Christian. America is not the church. Our rights, privileges, and even our duties as citizens, as commendable as they are, will never save us. And it's extremely foolish to look to political leaders as if they are infallible saviors, as if they usher in the kingdom. Jesus clearly said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And although Christ reigns supreme over the city of man and the city of God, even appointing governing authorities, Romans 13, it is ultimately Caesar who determines how to live worthily or not in Rome. And it is our political government who determines how to live worthily or not in America. But the constitution of the city of God, where our primary citizenship lies, does not begin with we the people. It begins and ends with verse 27, the gospel. The church's full unswerving allegiance is to Christ, first and foremost. Again, Paul writes, only live worthily as citizens in line with the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the constitution of the church. And as a pastor, Paul wants to see their earthly citizenship, their earthly lives conformed to this otherworldly legislation. The verb live as citizens there is an imperative or a command. And in verse 27, whether Paul comes and sees them or he's absent and remains in that prison cell, he wants to hear that they are living a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Well, Paul gives us three characteristics of a worthy life in verses 27 and 28. The first is found in verse 27, that you, plural, are standing firm in one singular spirit. The word spirit here can be a lowercase s, spirit, the emotional part of the human being, or it can be an uppercase s, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Both are biblical, both make sense in this context, but I lean toward an uppercase S, Spirit, primarily because he's going to talk about the fellowship of the Spirit in chapter 2, verse 1. And also we know that as believers, we live in and by the Spirit of God, who is the bond of unity in the church, especially in a hostile society. We corporately stand firm together in and by one spirit. Think of soldiers who stand against the enemy forces, rushing at them in the fullness of their might, clashing and colliding, chaos ensuing, but the soldiers, united, hold their ground. This is the defensive posture of the church. She stands firm. But the second characteristic of a worthy life consists of striving with one mind, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. This is a more offensive posture, as the soldiers who held their ground begin to advance forward. 
And both the defensive posture of standing fast and the offensive posture of advancing, striving side by side, reminds me of the battle strategy of the Spartans. So tight was their rectangular formation that the army was literally shielded on every side. One man covering the other side by side with spears thrusting over their shoulders. And by doing that, they were an unbreakable defense. They had an unbreakable defense. They were an unstoppable machine. The church ought to look like that. A united, impenetrable, and unstoppable force, not for the glory of Sparta, nor for the glory of a, of a glorious death, but, end of verse 27, for the faith of the gospel. Faith. And gospel. Paul has done all things for the progress and joy of the Philippians' faith, and the Philippians have been his partners in the advance of the gospel in a world that despises it. Societal opposition to the gospel renders Christianity a battlefield more than a bed of roses. We are surrounded by our enemies, but we're not called to fight like the Spartans. We're called to love our enemies. The church's battle cry, as one song puts it, is love reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war is to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And our weapon is the sword that makes the wounded whole. But all that is really hard to do when unbelievers deride, mock, and even shame you. When institutions happily impose their anti-Christian belief on Bible thumpers, when peers persecute you through social media simply because of what you post or what you don't like, or maybe posting your views on biblical sexuality, when employers prevent you from speaking your mind about matters, especially matters related to your faith, and force you to attend seminars or uh, workshops, called loving inclusivity in the workplace. When lawmakers pass bills where a parent can literally lose custody of their child for not affirming their identity when they choose to identify as the opposite sex, that's pretty close to home. In this battlefield, we need one another. We need one another to strive for the faith of the gospel. And an every man for himself mentality only leaves a church vulnerable to attack. Well, the third characteristic of a worthy life is that, verse 28, the church not be frightened in anything by their opponents. The word frightened or to intimidate refers to startling horses into a stampede which makes a lot of sense in this context. Paul is not forbidding fear from entering into your heart when you're being persecuted as if that were possible. Rather, to put it in modern terms, he's saying something like, don't freak out and retreat. The picture is one of a general who races up and down uh, the ranks of his army, exhorting his soldiers not to retreat as they see the enemy coming right at them, frightened. They could panic into retreat, especially when danger looms large. But Paul is encouraging us not to be frightened, not to be intimidated. 
And why shouldn't we be? Well, verse 28, because their opposition towards you and the gospel, he says, is a clear sign of their destruction. Those who oppose the gospel will inevitably incur eternal destruction, divine wrath, because they have already lost the battle. But those who advance the cause of the gospel will experience the complete opposite, salvation. So up to this point, living a life worthy of the gospel consists of three things. Defensively standing firm in the spirit, striving offensively for the faith of the gospel, and not retreating in fear when you are opposed or experience suffering. This, Paul says, is a sign of your salvation. If we were to stop there, it seems as if this text is teaching us that if we as believers live lives that are worthy of the gospel, then, and only then, will we experience salvation. Does that sound right to you all? Does that even sound possible? Not even Christians are good all the time. And to be honest, be a good person and God will save you is the most depressing news I have ever heard in my entire life. That is not possible. Not even Christians are good all the time, right? We bicker. We fight. We hold grudges against each other. We cower rather than stand firm in the spirit. We strive for the flesh rather than for the faith of the gospel. We retreat in people-pleasing fear when opposition comes. If Paul were arguing that salvation comes through our own worthy conduct, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Now we need to look away from ourselves and look to a worthy Savior. And that's our second point. We need to look to a worthy Savior to live lives that are worthy before God. Notice what Paul does in this text. It's pretty clever. He inserts a subtle yet powerful phrase which completely undercuts any moralistic works righteousness tendency. Verse 28. And that from God. What does that refer to? It's clear in the original that it not only points back to salvation, surely that's from God, but it reaches further back to the whole of the church's worthy conduct, to verses 27 and 28. All that is from God. A believer's salvation is given, not earned. Our worth is divinely created, not naturally cultivated. All that we have is a gift of grace. Now, sensing the need to support such a weighty claim, Paul adds, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You see that word granted? That word is literally translated, graced as a gift. Grace is a gift. And it's in the passive voice, which means someone is gracing us with this gift. And who is that? It's God. God is the giver of this gift of grace. You've been graced 
with faith, suffering, and salvation in the heavenly city. And all that, all that from beginning to end is brought into being by the God of all grace. But friends, what what is grace? Or better, who is grace? As one author puts it, grace is not something, but someone. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Grace isn't just someone, it's that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ is is the gift of grace, the gift of gifts. And he was given to you, not because you were worthy, not because he knew that you would become worthy or that you would believe, not because of what you are or what you've done, but solely because he is worthy and we are not. John the Baptist was right when he said that he was unworthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. Or the Roman centurion who said to Jesus, I am unworthy to have you under my roof. Or to Peter, when Peter was overwhelmed by his unworthiness and he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Indeed, we are unworthy and we join our voices with all those living creatures and the elders and the angels in Revelation 5.12 around the throne of God who declare unceasingly, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And it was precisely in the slain of that worthy lamb that God demonstrated his love for the unworthy, for us. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. But the love of Christ, vast beyond all measure, is far superior to any human expression of love. For he laid down his life, not for his friends, but for those who were sinners, ungodly, unworthy, hostile enemies. He laid down his life for unworthy sinners like you and me. So no, Paul is not promoting a works righteousness salvation here. He is assuming the two wonders of our worth and our unworthiness. Unworthiness apart from Christ, but ample worth in our worthy Savior. For it's only when unworthy sinners receive the gift of Christ by faith, that is the only time when we then can be newly created in him and then are enabled to live lives that are worthy in his sight. Apart from that, it's impossible. And that, friends, is a life worth living in a hostile society. And that's our final point. Having been commanded by God to live worthily as dual citizens, understanding what that worthy conduct consists of, and looking to our worthy Savior, we now end by thinking about how we can live worthily 
in a society that despises Christ, his gospel, and his church. Did you notice what I briefly mentioned but didn't expound on? Look at verses 29, again, 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We share in the same conflict of the apostle, the one that he had in the first century. That word is used to describe athletic contests or military battles, which points back to the Christian battle that we've been describing all along in verses 27 to 28, where there are antagonistic opponents causing suffering in the lives of those who live for Christ. And that suffering, Paul explains, is a gift. We've been graced with it, remember? But that's a gift we don't go out of our way to accept or even appreciate. And yet, Scripture makes it clear that every single Christian will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, it doesn't say might be, will be persecuted. Christians should expect to suffer. Why? Because Christ, our master, was persecuted, and he was the one who said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, that's a message that no prosperity gospel preacher is preaching these days. But the apostles certainly did. You see them in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas encouraging churches, saying that it is through much suffering that we will enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound like much? Does that sound like encouragement to you? It is through much suffering that we will enter the kingdom of God. Or in Acts 5, we read of the apostles after being beaten, left, quote, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. It's amazing. They embraced suffering, which you see throughout the book of Acts, right? Peter being beaten in prison. You see Stephen stoned to death. You see James being put to death by Herod Agrippa. You see Paul stoned and left for dead in Lystra, flogged and imprisoned in Philippi put on trial for his life in Athens and nearly killed by mob violence and a secret plot on his life. The list goes on and on and on. And in the midst of all that suffering, what happens to the church? The church is thriving. Thriving. Isn't that so counterintuitive? In the world, if a person or institution wants to thrive, you avoid suffering, right? Suffering impedes thriving. But in Christ, suffering impels thriving. The church is growing. And that is so counterintuitive. And yet so gloriously gospel-oriented. Is it not? Life through death. Power through weakness. Salvation through suffering. Which explains why the church... Church growth and evangelism goes through the roof when the church is persecuted. And we see that 
even in parts of the world today where there is much persecution. The blood of the martyrs continues to be the seed of the church. And in that, we get a glimpse of how suffering persecution can be a gift of grace. But if you're like me, when you hear of suffering being expected, unavoidable, and even joyfully embraced, you wonder why you shy away from it so much. We know Christianity is a battle, but it can sometimes feel like a badge of honor in society. At times, the world seems to praise you for being Christian. They love the fact that you're a good, moral, upright citizen who has a Christian work ethic. He contributes or she contributes to society and stands against that liberal ideology. They are happy to consider you part of the team because it contributes to their cause. At other times, unbelievers on the opposite side of the spectrum tolerate your presence because, well, you shy away from the debatable issues, never truly speak your mind, and always avoid entering into the fray of a controversial discussion in the name of being winsome or a good witness. Now, there's nothing wrong with being winsome or having a good witness, but those things can often be a way of cloaking our cowardice in godly attire. Frankly, we're just scared. We're scared to speak the truth. We're scared to offend. We're scared that people won't like us. And in the end, we even trick ourselves into thinking that it is more spiritual, spiritual to be kind than to be truthful. So how do we move from cowardice to courage? Well, let me tell you a story about the famous English reformer Thomas Cranmer, who was arrested by Roman Catholic religious authorities under the reign of Queen Mary, who later became known as Bloody Mary. After many months of suffering in prison and under the constant threat of being burnt at the stake, Thomas Cranmer, the famous reformer, recanted his faith. But his opponents didn't want just a written recantation. They wanted him to declare it publicly. So as Cranmer walked from the prison cell up to the podium, where there was a, an approved uh, written statement, the unexpected happened. In the middle of his speech... He went off script. And suddenly, instead of affirming this recantation, he publicly declared the opposite. And he suddenly refused to recant the true gospel and even recanted of his earlier recantations. So what did they do? They immediately rushed him off to the stake to be burnt. And as the stake was lit, he intentionally placed his right hand first into the fire, the hand that wrote things contrary to the truth in order to save his life. And as the flames swallowed up his body, the words of Stephen were on his lips. Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What was it that turned this cowardly Cranmer into a courageous Christian? Ultimately, it was a right apprehension and trust in the gospel. The gospel that offends but saves. The gospel that demands but enables. The gospel that causes suffering but gives deep, satisfying joy even in the midst of that suffering. The gospel that holds promise beyond the grave. The gospel that puts our short time on this earth into eternal perspective. For Christ, our conquering King, who suffered unto glory, declared these very words, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. May those words ring true even tonight as we have the countdown from 10 down to zero and bring in a new year. May we be mindful that time will end. Christ will return. And if we truly embrace this glorious gospel, what difference does that make going into a new year? I'll leave you with the words found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. It's Paul's prayer, and I pray it would become our own prayer as we depend upon the grace of God to live lives that are worthy in his sight, especially in a hostile society. Paul writes this, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed pray that you would seal this word upon our hearts, make it a reality in our lives, and bring glory to your name in a hostile world as you use our, our fragile jars of clay to emit the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.